Hello everyone, it's October 3rd, 2023. This week, well, all we can do is speculate on what went wrong with that rocket lab launch a few weeks ago. There hasn't been any word on the cause of the second stage failure, so all we have to go on is a few frames of video, but that can be fun too. So let's do some armchair analysis and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 428 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. And we're back. So <laughs> we had one one week off. I was feeling a little under the weather on Sunday. And then I said, I think we agreed that we would record the next day, but then Ben wasn't able to make it. And so we were like, you know what? Let's just wait. Mm, yeah. Sometimes that's the best thing to do. Well, I guess a lot's happened since we kind of, you know, haven't recorded in, because by missing the one week, it's now been, I mean, two full weeks since the last time we uh, met and recorded anything. And so, yeah. I mean, among other things, did you did you guys watch the uh, Osiris-Rex sample return? Yeah, I was watching it like right before we were supposed to record. And like, mm. it was really cool. And I was like, cool, I'm going to sit and watch this because um, I don't tend to make broadcasts because I just, I forget about them. And then when my calendar goes off, like I'm already doing something else or in a meeting or whatever. And so like, I, I got to sit down and watch this and it was like really exciting. And I was like really into it. And then we didn't record the show. <laughs> so <laughs> so that was me. Did, did both of you get to watch? Uh, David, I suspect you were asleep trying to pretend like the world didn't exist. <laughs> I actually did watch it. So there was something that happened with the, or didn't happen with the drogue shoot. And I was I was wondering if maybe we should discuss that because it seems like there was a little bit of confusion about like whether or not it deployed. Yeah, it, it actually deployed, the capsule deployed its drogue shoot early. And so it was slowing down earlier, slowing down for a longer period of time. So it landed uh, eight minutes earlier than expected. But like on the live stream, I couldn't see the drogue shoot. And I wonder if that's what the why some people were maybe suggesting that it didn't deploy. Yeah, I, I had trouble noticing it too, if it was noticeable. It's small and white. What are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> and what made it worse is they had a, a high altitude camera. So like a camera on the airplane. It, it didn't take long for the capsule to be at a lower altitude than the high altitude camera. And like I actually watched the capsule pass the horizon from the viewpoint of the high altitude camera. Like that was right after I tuned in. And so I'm like, okay, I know this is a high altitude camera. So it's going to make the capsule look like it's lower in the atmosphere than it actually is. And even with that in the back of my head, seeing it pass the horizon and keep falling with apparently no drug shoot, because I couldn't see a drug shoot. <laughs> I was, I was screaming at my computer screen. Um, I was like, holy crap. Like if they haven't deployed the drug shoot, then they're not deploying the main. Like if the drogue isn't out yet, like that has to happen before the main. So even if the drogue shoot is like really late, but then the main does deploy, the main might not deploy in time. And like, yeah. it looks like this thing is about ready to smash into the Utah desert. Like it was with everything that I knew about the sequence and uh, an understanding of the the perspective playing you know optical illusions i still was i was literally screaming at at the, <laughs> at the computer it was just i mean it was thrilling in like a bad way i was like i don't want to see this i don't mm. want to see this thing crash and then right so it it landed just fine it didn't even drag along the ground like it, it was a beautiful picture perfect landing yeah he lucked out yeah that could have been a genesis 2.0 because mm -hmm. that one had its I mean, parachute fail, <laughs> that capsule. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. And I like how uh, I saw a lot of people were joking about how 
close to the road it landed. So like the kind of, you know, skeptics, the moon landings were faked crowd will be like, oh, look at this. You couldn't even be bothered to put it out in the middle of the testing range somewhere <laughs> and instead had it so close to the road. Eh, fake. <laughs> so Yeah, right. Because they, they had to they had to be able to reach it out with a crane so they didn't leave footprints on the desert. And like, that's how long the crane is. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like I'm sure, I'm sure if the, if the conspiracy theory gets started, that's, that would mm. be the focus. But I mean, how lucky is it that they landed right next to a road? Like they could just pull up. I mean, obviously the, the helicopters, you know, they landed on the road. They didn't need to use it, but just like they couldn't have asked for a better landing from my perspective. It just seemed amazing. Yeah. Basically my, yeah, it sounded like the kind of two possibilities where, you know, it's going to land somewhere, they're going to see exactly where it landed, and they're going to go recover it right away. Or they're going to spend a couple hours trying to figure out where the hell in this testing range it landed. <laughs> Mercifully, we got the former. There's usually not an in-between, you know, it's, yeah. it's either really good or I mean, a real I, pain in the butt. I wonder what, I wonder what that would look like, the where in the hell did it land? Because like, they have cameras on it, right? Like, they know, like, they can see it it's not just they have a transponder like they see it but i'm sure that there is an element of like oh, okay we got to like dial this in like which bush is it next to yeah because yeah even with the parachute you know much bigger than the capsule that's still out in that much because because this this testing range this this army base or actually i think it's actually a pair of army bases and they were uh it landed right near the border because the two of them had kind of like a friendly competition to see <laughs> if it's going to land on mm -hmm. our side of the range or your side um but yeah i my like it's just so gigantic you can i mean you could see it from space is how big this thing is it's absolutely massive right so when does it i'm ass i'm assuming it's already at the cape right like they must have shipped it overnight or houston yeah they 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 wanted oh, houston, to grab it right. asap and get it out of there <laughs> And they collected a lot of uh, samples from the surrounding area, right? So this is just mm -hmm. to mitigate any problems with contamination. So I thought that was kind of neat that they, you know, and I don't know if being near a highway affects that, you know, <laughs> uh, makes that more difficult. Well, they, I mean, they they weren't actually near a highway, right? Well, it was, it, was exactly. a, it was a road. Like, I mean. I don't even think it was paved. It, it looked like it was a dirt road just elevated. But anyway, yeah, they, um, they actually collected fewer samples than they might have um, because if it drags, they have to collect samples along its entire drag path. And that, that didn't happen. So they, they didn't need to worry about it. So I, I'm, I'm assuming I was, look, I was trying to find their exact sample procedures last week and I couldn't find them. Um, but I'm assuming that they take, you know, like a couple of samples really close to where it landed and then a couple from farther out. And if you look at photos, you can see like surveyor flags that they've placed out, which are like indicators of, mm. of where those samples are going to get taken from. Um, I think they place the flags out a, so they can pace them and make sure that they're planned out properly, but also so that people can stay away from those spots, maybe. Uh, I'm not sure how much they protect the the sample sites, but... And if I remember from our interview with, with Lockheed, they also have within this, the capsule return... What's it called? The, the, or the return capsule? Uh, within it, there's a bunch of uh, witness plates that they kind of sealed off at various times in the mission... Yep. To kind of get an idea of what the environment was like, even within just the capsule and when you're you know, on orbit. So um, I also saw something really silly. Somebody specifically was pointing out that the, the radiation conditions that the capsule had experienced between Bennu and here uh, were so extreme that no living organisms could have survived. And I think they were quoting somebody. And I feel like the person they were quoting probably 
was talking about Earth organisms from when it launched. But the whole thing, just like in this one post on social media, it sounded like somebody was warding off hopes about us finding you know, extraterrestrial life, uh, I guess, on, on Bennu. <laughs> Just it felt very silly. Electron suffered another second stage failure. So uh, this is becoming a thing, isn't it? Yeah. Or is it just me? But three times no, the, seems like a lot. Um, yeah, the upper stage is cursed. Um, yeah, the upper stage is cursed. I mean, the first stage seems to perform fine like every time, but the, it's always something different with the upper stage. Um, and this time it might be, again, something different. I don't suppose it's a previous problem, but unfortunately we don't know yet because no information has been made available, which kind of sucks. I mean, I was hoping by now we would know something, but mm. I guess this is where we can speculate. I mean, do you have any speculations? <laughs> well, I thought it'd be cool to just kind of talk about these failures to give a context of what had happened yeah. previously and why this is different. And so, uh, in May 2017, their first mission is a test, had a pretty dopey failure. Uh, there was some data loss timeout. Apparently, the range software uh, kind of screwed up. And so, uh, range safety essentially terminated it early just because of an issue uh, related to the range itself. And so the rocket, as far as like we could tell, was okay. It just, you know, just I guess they really sad. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And then um, go forward a few years to uh, summer of 2020. And then this is the first proper failure. Uh, Pixar didn't happen. And in this case, there was a faulty electrical connection, which basically cut power to the turbo pumps and shut down the engine. And so when you look at, right, the whole big thing about the Rutherford is that um, it's a Carolox rocket, like the whole. You know, or the upper stage Rutherford. It's a vacuum optimized uh, Ruther um, Rutherford. It's Carolox, like the whole rocket is, all the engines on the first stage. But right, the big thing is that the turbo pumps are powered by batteries. And so there's, you know, two high voltage batteries that power the pumps initially. And then once they're exhausted, they do a hot swap, they jettison them, and then a third battery takes over. And so a faulty electrical connection. So something related to, I guess, the batteries connecting power to the turbo pumps. Okay. So keep that in mind as a possible culprit for this recent one, at least in my my speculations. Then go forward another year to May of 2021. They're running out of toes mission. Uh, evidently, the igniter uh, on the second stage screwed up. And because of it, it was sending corrupted signals to the thrust vector control system. And so it, the, the TVC was basically had parameters outside of the normal range, I guess, is kind of the, the language they used. And so the, the computer, the controller on the upper stage just shut down the engine as per, you know, if the TVC is getting all jacked up, that's what you do. And so it wasn't able to reach orbit there. And so they had to redesign the ignition system, but that's, that's another thing. Okay, we've got an electrical connection that was an issue and then the igniter that caused an issue. And then, even though a lot of people are like writing this in the news as like, you know, oh, this is their third failure in, you know, three years, a little over three years. It's like, yeah, that's true. But those two failures happened kind of early on. Uh, since then, there was 19 successes over the intervening two years until a week and change ago for the We Will Never and, and Desert. And how many people launch almost once a month? Like, <laughs> right? I mean, <laughs> 19 successes in 24 months like that is a record that only spacex can beat. like mm. 
that that is a lot of launches. So so now what happened this time? Once again, David, like you say, the the first stage has done its job. They've never had a failure with the first stage, but there's a clean separation. And then you see this glow of light and you really have to like slow down the footage of the upper stage firing because this all happens very quickly before the camera gets uh, knocked out. But essentially, you see this glow of light from the engine igniting, but then there's orange sparks flying out of the nozzle. You can see kind of radially a lot of them are coming out of a nozzle, but there's also a lot that are coming from above and outside of the nozzle. So it looks like something up near the, the, the power head maybe exploded or, you know, did something that destroyed the camera. So that's why the camera cut out immediately. And what is up there are, you know, these batteries. And they've had issues with the electrical con connections to the batteries. Um, I guess the igniter could also, you know, would lie above the nozzle, the throat. And uh, potentially if, you know, something started booming and sparkling, you know, significantly, that could lead to the sparks outside of it, basically getting outside and then passing in front of the camera and letting us see this little, you know, collection of sparks zooting each way. Um, uh, but like, yeah, when, when you, when you, it's, it's, when you look at the upper stage ignite, you got the, uh, the batteries in the foreground, uh, one of the first, uh, pair of batteries. So that's one that's going to get jettisoned later. And it's, you know, covered, it's, you know, this block covered in foil in the foreground in gray foil. And so it's not, the sparks don't look like they're centered on it, but I mean, if I got to guess, I'm going to guess that something happened with the batteries or the connections with the batteries to the powerhead, uh, the the turbo pumps, and that basically caused either, I mean, some sparking, which killed the turbo pumps and killed everything because it lost thrust immediately. Like the telemetry showed that it didn't slow down or it slowed down immediately. So once once the upper stage ignited, it did not give any even residual thrust. It just kind of or enough to yeah counter gravity. It just kind of slowed down right away. So yeah, that's that's all we know though. <laughs> we have no idea about what actually had happened. So I don't know anything uh, you want to. Add to the speculating. So with the sparks, I, I tend to think that that's not an electrical failure. Um, I tend to think that that's parts of the engine burning or something, you know, debris in the engine burning. Um, yeah, if, if these batteries short out, they can throw out some sparks, but I, I don't think it'd be quite that dramatic. Um, and, you know, it, it's sort of like a, a weird space Occam's razor, um, right? Like, don't don't blame things on electrical when there's a rocket sitting right there. <laughs> you know, like, um, it just feels like it's a much more reasonable thing to assume that it's the big piece of equipment that's there specifically to burn fuel at high temperatures. But that doesn't mean that, you know, you can ignore the, the electrical system. I think if we're going to speculate, I think my guess, like my bet I think is going to be on um, debris and like a propellant issue. But yeah, I mean, it, it is really suspicious that that flash of light really does feel like it's coming from the, the dance floor, the, the bottom of the, of the second stage rather than from the engine itself. And so sure. Yeah. Maybe there was some combustion. Maybe it's a turbo pump issue. Maybe that was the turbo pump exploding in a very polite way uh, for turbo pumps. <laughs> But you're also totally right. The you can see sparks, um, like pinging off of the engine bell, right? Like these sparks are clearly coming from above. So, yeah, it'll be really interesting. And interesting, those those sparks are not as long lasting as the ones coming out of the engine itself, out of the or sorry, out of the uh, nozzle. I, I'm not even sure that there are any coming out of the nozzle because 
they they could just as easily be from behind the nozzle, like on the other side of the rocket. And like, that seems to make sense to me that they would be on the other side of the rocket because they look so similar. They probably should be coming from the same source, right? But um, there is one frame where you can see what looks like exhaust from the engine, like the plume impacting the second stage just for like one frame of this low frame rate video. Oh, you mean the first stage of the first stage? Yes. And, and it seems like that if that is actually, you know, a traditional like exhaust plume, seems like it might've started up the second stage engine might've started up for a second and then shut down again. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's so hard to tell because, you know, that could just be gas from some other source, uh, uh, you know, luminous gas or plasma or whatever, that's, you know, it's hard to tell the distance and the geometry of it. It could just be out in space expanding from a different source than the the engine bell. But yeah, I'll, I'll put money on, on this being like, if, because we, this is what we do is we make random wild guesses. My <laughs> random wild guess is that uh, it's part of the propulsion system uh, just upstream of the combustion chamber. So uh, like downstream of the tanks, and I'm going to say it's between the turbo pumps, the beginning of the turbo pumps and the beginning of the, of the combustion chamber. So the igniter for the second stage, what is that? Does this use uh T-tab? I thought, it's yeah. It's a Carolox engine. Yeah. I thought, I, me, my Googling I was it. not helpful. Um, I tried to figure that out, but T-tab is a good candidate. I'm just trying to see if like maybe that part of the ignition had happened at least, mm-hmm. but it's really hard to tell. Yeah. Oh, and I forgot to mention, I mean, the fact that it, I, I I didn't appreciate how much of the Rutherford is 3D printed. Mm-hmm. And so um, it is a mostly 3D printed engine too. So just, I guess, something to also keep in the back of your mind. But yeah, I could see, Ben, what you're saying. And, you know, if there was something that happened upstream related to the propellants and like you know, starting to burn and destroy stuff. Cause I don't know if, um, you do see some sparks on the upper stage, uh, when it's firing normally, like nothing like we're seeing mm-hmm. in this video. And so maybe, yeah. yeah, there was like an over pressure event and part of, you know, the exhaust we're looking at is right. Engine rich, uh, like they like to joke about. Right. And so, yeah. So you can, you can normally see the propellant flow before ignition. And so, and I mean, it's really bright though. Like it shouldn't be that bright if it's just propellant. There's got to be some combustion happening. I think there is. Yeah, I think for a second because it looks really, really bright. But it, it's bright outside of the engine. So ah oh, man, I don't know. Maybe it's a combo. Maybe it was leaking f- propellant, so they're dumping you know gaseous oxygen out into the environment, and mm. there was a short on one of the batteries. And so as that, you know, turbo pump is spinning up, it's also get, you know, overheating a wire or burning through insulation or something. And so it gets, it's doing both things at once. It's making the leak worse or it's increasing the amount of leaked propellants and it's increasing the ignition potential just by mm-hmm. burning through a wire or something. And so maybe those two things happen at once and you can ignite propellants with a short i don't know it just just seems weird to say that you would ignite you'd have a short so bad that it could ignite leaking propellant and it's also really weird to say that you would have propellant leaking enough to to do this 
either way, it's a spectacular failure, right? Like this is not a boring failure. <laughs> that is true. Hey, so, so here's something interesting I found. Uh, evidently, when Peter Beck was on uh, Miko podcast, Miko, everyone should check it out. Um, in this inter- interview, he basically uh, said that the uh, a lot of soot builds up on the injector face of the upper stage engine. And then these flakes dislodge, and that's what the sparks you see during a properly firing upper stage engine mm. comes from. And so, could you imagine maybe there was just some anomalously large mm. buildup? No, because there was no combustion to build it up. We saw the, the flash. The flash was outside of the engine. Yeah, but that was, I mean, that was a reflection of, right? I mean, the upper stage doesn't flash <laughs> up at the, or sorry, the, lo- the first stage, the top of the first stage doesn't flash, right? It, it just reflects the light from the second stage trying to start. No, 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 you're, you're right. It's, but that's not what I'm, that's not what I'm suggesting. You can see that there's like a ring of light, right? It kind of looks like an annular eclipse. So you've got a ring of light and then a dark bit in the middle. I'm interpreting both the shadows that are cast um, on the engine bell by the, the rivets around the, the rim there where the bell connects to the, combustion in the combustion chamber nozzle or throat oh yeah the the extension where the extension ends basically right sure yeah so it i i think i can maybe see some shadows coming down especially on the right side i'm sorry on the left side and then we see this ring of sort of a halo um, like a horseshoe halo and there's a dark bit in the middle so i'm interpreting that as there is a bright light source on the far side of the engine bell and the engine bell itself is casting a shadow rather than the light source being up inside the combustion chamber and the engine bell not being able to cast a shadow because it's, I mean, it casts a a shot. It's Mm. cast a ring shaped shadow rather than a hole shaped shadow. Um, And then if you look at the, the top of the upper stage, um, you can also see what looks to me like, uh, like the terminator uh, of night. Like there's like a, almost like a crescent shaped, darkness right it's like light on one side and then you've got what looks to me like the shadow of the engine bell being cast on the first stage so uh, like all of this is total conjecture but like it looks to me like there is a light source outside of the engine bell Mm. and i don't think maybe the chamber failed on one side on the far side right exactly either the combustion chamber failed um or something upstream of the combustion chamber failed and the propellants were dumped out into the vacuum and then were ignited through some mechanism. And like when I see this, this sequence of photos, right? Like all, all video is, um, I, I don't see enough gaps where the engine could have been firing long enough to have been building up coke that could oh, have I think flaked the, I off. Think and, I thought the coke is built up beforehand. No, no, no. That it's it's yeah, it's a result of incomplete combustion. In like a perfect stoichiometric world, you have exactly enough uh, oxygen burning exactly enough petroleum product, right? The RP1, um, so that all you wind up with is carbon dioxide and water. Um, but in reality, um, petroleum products are full of a bunch of different chemicals and none of them burn completely except for, you know, some of the really, really tiny ones. And so, yeah, you wind up with extra carbon, uh, building up because 
it hasn't been turned into carbon dioxide. Right. I realize this this whole digression wasn't very helpful because yeah, that's that soot builds up while it's firing. So right. that's well irrelevant and, and, to and, and like, there's no test firing prior to that that might have caused because that's the thing. I was that's why I was thinking. I was like wondering like could you have like some of this fuel that somehow kind of got there and then you know. And it's an anomalously large amount of it there. And so now when you try to start your engine, you suddenly have an extra source of fuel sitting there that you weren't anticipating. And that causes, you know, an overpressure, you know, burns too hot and the, you know, the, the combustion chamber fails. But, but I, I realize just thinking about it a little more, that doesn't make sense for that buildup to how could that buildup have happened when this engine has just been sitting passively on top of the first stage and not firing or I doing think anything. David has the right question to ask. Is this kind of buildup possible uh, during a test stand firing? And my guess is that they do fire, they do test fires at the upper stage engines. I, it could go either way, though, in my estimation. I don't, I do not know. But consider that Coke isn't the only thing that sparks. And these very much do look like that, you know, quote unquote, nominal sparking. But one thing that we know for sure is that that happens inside the combustion chamber. And at the beginning of this, we do see very clear evidence of sparks bouncing off of the outside of the engine nozzle. So even if some of the sparks are coming from test firing uh, carbon buildup, the initial sparks are not. Unless combustion chamber failed on the side and that's how it yeah wanted to go out that way <laughs> well right like heck if that if that's what happened <laughs> yeah right like if that's what happened then you have um much bigger things to worry about than some excess coke production from testing <laughs> like yeah <laughs> um but honestly if if that happens there's going to be a ton of metal particles to burn up mm-hmm. which I'm guessing that's what this is. I'm, I'm betting that that is uh, engine fireworks, uh, fireworks made of your engine. Yeah. Now that's that. That is uh, going back to your Occam's razor. Um, <laughs> right. Easier, <laughs> thing. A more parsimonious answer to it. Yeah. Don't don't attribute to malice what can be attributed to a giant engine that's burning things. <laughs> yep. Okay. <laughs> well, I guess it's all the speculating. We could or probably should do. <laughs> yeah, come for the speculation, stay for the wild. Come, and it's come for the wild, fun. stay for the speculation. It's going to be fun to learn when they finally like explain what the cause was. And it's nothing we even yeah. touched on in the slightest. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. And and like I do really appreciate talking this stuff over with you guys and like hearing your pushback on my ideas and pushing back on your ideas because like – this is how like us three as individuals, like we think this through so much better when we talk to each other about it. Um, and then it's really fun to have thought it through so well. And then, yeah, totally be blind, blindsided by whatever it actually is. I do. I, I've, I've, my priors are now updated. Okay. So let's do three short and sweets once again. And Dennis, what is the first? Stoke space hops. Following a successful static test firing of its novel upper stage, Stokespace is making news once again, as the Hopper 2 vehicle did a dynamic test firing two weeks ago. The Hydrolox engine, consisting of a ring of combustion chambers around a central heat shield, lifted the test vehicle 9 meters during the 15-second flight in Moses Lake, Washington. As the first opportunity to put all the components together in the fully autonomous closed-loop control system, with the successful test completed, the company is now ready to work on the reusable first stage of the vehicle, with the goal of a full-fledged orbital 
commercial vehicle in 2025. Next, Sierra Space does a burst test. Sierra Space conducted another test of his large integrated flexible environment, or LIFE, life inflatable module. This test included the addition of a plate mounted to the exterior of the module to simulate a window that is planned to be incorporated into the full-scale version. The model burst at 33% higher pressure than the certification standard. The next round of tests will be performed on full-scale versions of the LIFE module in hopes of a flight-ready version in the next few years. And then next up, China plans for lunar sample return. China is aiming for a 2024 lunar sample return from the moon's far side. The mission will be carried out by Chang'e 6 Lunar Lander, which will follow the launch of a lunar relay satellite in the first half of 2024. The lander will attempt to collect 2,000 grams of material from the South Pole Aitken Basin. An ascent vehicle will then send a canister of the material to orbit, where it will rendezvous with its service module for return to Earth. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns, and thank yous. Uh, ben, if you have some <laughs> thank yous to send out to some listeners who have helped us with uh, some of our software mm-hmm. issues. Well, yeah, so so we have a bot in Discord uh, named Tombot, and Tombot uh, primarily uh, collects guesses for this week in spaceflight history for us so that we have everything on a little dashboard and we don't miss as many guesses as we used to. And Tombot had this one weird bug that I totally couldn't figure out. Um, I was unable to reproduce it and um, doing a ton of additional uh, logging on the server. I could never see the issue happening. And so my conclusion was that it was happening in Discord's uh, API that I'm using, they're, they're like SDK that I'm using, or it was happening um, within Discord servers. And like, there, there was nothing I could do about it. And um, three people in particular, Uncle Willie, um, Fonji Ricola, and Chris S um, were in uh, the This Week in Spaceflight History channel, trying to figure out what could be wrong, uh, throwing around uh, a bunch of theories without you know, being able to test any of them. And I'm very lucky because I happened to be at the end of my workday and I saw the notifications and I jumped into Discord and I was like, oh yeah, okay. Let me tell these people that it's a bug that I can't fix. And they just kept asking questions. And so uh, they motivated me to go take a closer look. And um I actually was able to document the bug because we had a bunch of different people there who could submit guesses uh, one right after the other. We were able to uh, to reproduce the bug. And then after a lot of reading of my own code, I finally figured out where the bug was. And what's really weird is that when I first opened the code, the first thing I looked at was actually literally right where the bug was. Um, and then I followed a bunch of code all over into different folders and I wound up finding the bug right where I had started. Um, but we, we fixed it with five characters, uh, two curly braces and three (laughs) periods. Uh, so if you're, um, a JavaScript person, uh, I, uh, made a copy I, I, I failed to make a copy of, of an object. I assumed for some reason that the object, uh, was frozen or immutable, uh, and it wasn't. And so, uh, it was a a quick solution. I just copied the object, put curly braces around it and dot, dot, dot to do a destructuring assignment and, uh, yeah, fixed, fixed the issue. Um, so anyway, I really wanted to express, uh, my thanks. It was a good, it was a good 
productive, uh, like half hour that these folks spent with me. And it, I don't know, it, it, it was a real confidence boost for me for some reason. I was feeling really down at the end of my workday. I was just getting tired and exhausted. And, uh, these three in particular were there and they made me feel good about myself again. So <laughs> thank you guys. Yay. So moving on then to this week in spaceflight history, uh, we have five winners. We have the Greek, Cy Kyle, Uncle Willie, Deathkin, and Astro. And the event or the clue was victory roll. So uh, I guess that was a pretty decent clue. The event was the 29th of September, 2004, and it was the flight 16P of Spaceship One. So this is going back to the X-Prize, which is a fun little, I don't know, time in spaceflight history. So before I go over what the X-Prize requirements are, I'll just tell you that there was one other flight prior to this, four months or so prior, that actually was essentially the same flight, but that one didn't count. So that was flight 15P. Um, and that one actually successfully reached the Carmen line back in June, but it was not registered as a competing flight, so it didn't count. Plus, there was no like follow flight two weeks later, um, which is a requirement to win the X Prize. So yeah, just ah. real quick, the X Prize requirement, since I feel like it's been enough time that maybe we need to, like we should talk about that very, very quickly. Um, this is for the first non-governmental launch of a re reusable crewed spacecraft, and it has to be launched twice within two weeks. Um, and if you do that, you win $10 million, which is probably not nearly as much as is spent on the development of the vehicle itself. Um, one interesting thing that I didn't know is it, it actually specifically has to be 90% reusable. I didn't know that there was, um, I mean, I guess there probably would be a specific limit on how much of it has to be reusable because not 100% of anything ever is really. Uh -huh. um, and I'm assuming that that does not count the fuel. So, um, but yeah, 90%. So 10% of, you know, your particular launch system could be expendable, actually. Expendable in probably in that you bring it home and remove it, right? Not that you drop a 10% of your mass on the way up. Oh, you mean like a used heat shield or something? Yeah. Like it's open to interpretation because it's a, a competition. But the intention there is that you're bringing home everything that you launched. And once you bring it home, you can refurbish it, but in order to count as being the same vehicle launching again, it has to be, you know, 90% the same parts. You can't Theseus's ship yourself into a new vehicle. I hadn't considered that. I just figured it meant that you could, like, you could drop 10% of it sure. on the way. To, yeah, uh, if you want to do that and then not replace a single bolt when you get home. Like, that's fine. You could do that. Okay, yeah. <laughs> no, I, don't, I don't think that's okay, the intention yeah. is all I'm saying. But yeah, so I mean, in short, those are the requirements. I'm sure that there's probably a whole lot of other stipulations too. Uh, but yeah, just to refresh your memory. Um, but yeah, so this is flight 16P. So this was the next one. And this was actually the fifth powered flight of this particular spacecraft. And um, it was piloted by Mike Melville. Um, and it was supposed to be piloted by someone else. I think the pilot's name, I don't know if it was ever disclosed, although I'm sure we could find it. Um, but uh, he had dropped out at the last minute due to, I believe it was like stress, as well as his wife having just recently given birth to a child. Plus, I think he had gotten sick. So they had to pick someone at the last minute. They went with Mike Melville, who was a test pilot who was pretty good friends with Bert Rutan, who's the one who actually designed uh, this crazy space plane. Ah. <laughs> so they kind of, you know, had like a working rapport. And uh, he was chosen, but he was, but his name was not announced until within like the last couple hours just before launch. So um, it was kept kind of secret. Like I said, um, 
the requirement for these flights is that it has to be a crewed spacecraft. Now, it's going to have a pilot, but it doesn't necessarily have to have any crew for this competition. You just need to have the weight. You just have to have enough onboard mass to count for two human beings, as well as, I guess, one pilot. So ah. I guess three total. Yeah, you don't need to risk their lives, though. Yeah, right. Exactly. I think that's a yeah, really good be, you know, out. Like you don't want actual live human ballast. You can just use regular ballast. <laughs> um, <laughs> the cheap kind. That would just need to be about 180 kilograms. Uh, so they had that on board and that was like in order to simulate the two passengers. Uh, there was, And then there was also a what was called a gold box. And I couldn't find any information on this. And that was what actually monitored the flight to ensure that it had passed the Carmen line. Uh, that's what that did. I couldn't find any information on it. Um, so it was some kind of a box that was capable of, you know, determining altitude. I think that was probably the main thing. But how exactly it did that, I don't know. Is it is it just like XPRIZE trying to do like a fancy pun on a black box? I mean, uh, I yeah, guess I so. Think, I think so. But I think suffice it to say there was third-party instrumentation. <laughs> <laughs> and then some other items on board, just a lot of other stuff like photos, a teddy bear that I think was auctioned off to charity or something. Um, there was also some M&Ms that Mike Melville had smuggled on board in a flight suit pocket, which he wasn't supposed to. And he said that he did that or he didn't tell anyone because obviously he, you know, like would have been told no, because uh, those can get into instruments and kind of make a mess, which they did because he had a little bit of fun with those once uh, he was in zero G. <laughs> so if you recall, this uh, this uh, space plane is actually first carried to a pretty high altitude of about 50,000 feet on board the White Knight, which is this large airplane, kind of, you know, holds the spacecraft underneath and then it like releases it. Uh, so that's what they did here. Um, at 50,000 feet, it was released. And at the 52nd mark after having ignited the engine, and this is at about Mach 2.7, it actually began to roll. And it really began to roll. So it was a 190 degree per second roll. So like pretty fast, like if you just imagine that. Um, and, it's, and it looks to be going like straight up. I don't know if it quite is, but it's it's a pretty steep ascent. And it's just rolling and rolling and rolling. And if you look at the video from inside the cockpit, you can see the sun you know, it's shining from one side and it's just kind of like circling around the interior of the cockpit, which seems like it would be uh, nausea inducing because it's not a gentle roll. It's 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 pretty fast. Um, but he didn't seem to have any problem with that. Um, uh, so yeah, ground control called for an abort and Melva was in the process of actually preparing to shut down the engine. The whole time he's looking at his Apogee predictor, which um, again, I don't know exactly how this instrument works, but it sounds pretty simple. But basically, Basically, the goal is to get up to the Carmen line, and they're not there quite yet because it's going to have to coast on momentum. So basically, there's an instrument on board which tells the pilot, like, if you cut the engine off now, this is how high you will go. Yeah. So he was waiting for that to get just above 100, then he would cut the engine. Um, although once this roll started to happen, he was planning on cutting it anyway, um, and then that's when he got the call. And there were some rumors that... Uh, he actually ignored the call to terminate the burn, but that's not true. He was going to terminate it anyway. Um, and it just so happens that that's when he got the call to shut the engine down. And so he did. And that's also the same moment at which, or just around the same moment at which they would have gone over the 100 kilometer mark. So, so it kind of worked out the way I see it. He probably did wait, but then once he got the call to shut down the engine, that's when they were in the clear anyway. So I guess just go ahead and shut it down. You'll 
like still make it to the Carmen line. Yeah, so that was at the 77 second mark into the burn. The altitude was 55 kilometers. So yeah, from 55 kilometers, uh, it coasts like up to 103. So that's a pretty, you know, significant coast, which always surprises me that, I mean, that's how much thrust this motor was producing that you could still coast another 50 miles upward. Or I'm sorry, like 50 kilometers. But yeah, the full burn of the motor was estimated to be about 89 seconds. And so had it gone the full 89 seconds, maybe 150 or something like that, possibly more. Mike Melville said that the roll was not so bad. um, And that's just because it was very low aerodynamic stress at that altitude. So basically you're spinning, but mostly in space. So uh, you're not having to deal with, you know, control services like plowing into the wind sideways, because that wouldn't be great if you had, uh, you know, these large wings and they were kind of like spinning in midair. That's not how airplanes work. Um, But in this case, um, it was more of a spaceship at that point. So uh, not too big of a deal. And so, yeah, because it was uh, so high in altitude, he couldn't correct the roll with the control services of the plane. So he had to wait. He was able to apparently reduce the roll a little bit down to about 140 degrees per second. So, you know, it's about like 50 degrees per second less. So I guess he slowed the roll. Um, but by no means it stopped it. I mean, that that's not bad, though, for being so so far out of the atmosphere, you know, being very close to being out of the atmosphere. Being able to drop 50 degrees a second seems pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, I guess in, that was probably just during the first part of the ascent because, yeah, quickly after that, it probably got too high and then it wasn't going to make any difference at all, um, no matter what you did with, you know, <laughs> the wings because uh, right. there's no air. The next step was um, he feathered out the wings. So, uh, again, just to go back to how Spaceship One works, uh, this is the vehicle that has these uh, wings that can essentially, like, pivot in kind of like an upward direction, or you can think of the body as kind of like like pivoting downward. It's a very odd-looking configuration. I don't know how to describe it, but um, this is in order to give the vehicle a shuttlecock type of an effect once it comes back so that it stays in the correct orientation during reentry, which is very important. Yeah. Um, and that part of the vehicle is, you know, that actually was very successful. But um, yeah, so this is interesting. So this is a question that I have. So basically, the wings were feathered. The vehicle is still rolling. Then that's when he used the RCS system to actually take out the roll. Like I was wondering, I mean, there could be several reasons for this, but why would you do that second? Like why not use the reaction control system to actually take out the roll first before you start making any weird maneuvers and, you know, changing the configuration of the vehicle? Because it seems like if it's spinning and then you're changing the center of mass and so forth, it could actually start to tumble or is it just because the rcs system does not work in that configuration that which is the question guess. that i had that i couldn't find the answer mm. to i was really hoping you were going to know because that was my guess was like <laughs> maybe you just can't turn it on that could be although that doesn't seem i mean that seems like a not a design flaw but it, it's i mean it seems like you would want to have two different you know like reaction control system yeah maybe, maybe it just it, it maybe it's designed to work well in the in the uh, feathered configuration and it just you can turn it on in the normal configuration but all of your thrust is going to be out of whack and it's just easier to get it up also it, it's really high priority to get the feather uh get to get the wings up because mm. you're if everything else fails at least that's going to mean that you're not uh you're, you're you know that's a passive system even if you ran out of rcs fuel you'd probably be able to land if you have that feather up, but if you don't, you're not coming home. 
So I wonder if it's just yeah. a priority thing rather than any practical. Yeah. Well, that's a good observation, actually. Yeah. I suppose it's just because it's that important. It just seems like you're already in a very unstable situation and then you might make yeah. it worse by, you know, like feathering the vehicle when it's still spinning. No, I, uh, I totally feel you. Because like, yeah, if you think about like shift, because it, it shifts the center of gravity up out of the middle of the... Um, right. Yeah. Like I'm assuming it shifts it up out of the middle of the cargo compartment or the crew compartment. Depends on how much mass is in the wings compared to the rest. Yeah, of right. Yeah, it's tough to say, but but it moves it up. I mean, like, for yeah, sure. it. I could totally see that changing the the spin dynamics, and yeah, maybe even getting into a tumble. But yeah, Mike didn't seem to think it was too big of a deal. So yeah, like first you feather the wings, then you use the RCS system. Then he released a handful of M&Ms, like I said he would. Uh, <laughs> I mean, he was just having fun with those. I mean, he really seemed to have, like enjoy the novelty um, of being zero G. And it did go everywhere, apparently. Uh, they had to clean it up. Uh, I don't know if he got in real trouble for that since it was a successful flight anyway. But yeah, the uh, carefree reentry, as it's called, that actually worked very well. So yeah, like you said, um, this is a completely passive reentry. Once the wings are feathered, you could come in like upside down if you want, and the ship will actually reorient itself, uh, and it will come in correctly with no issues. So that's exactly what happened. Uh, so uh, he was able to ride it back, um, and then at about fifty-one thousand feet, that's when you retract the wings and go back into, I guess, like airplane mode, which was at five Gs, by the way. So this was still not a super easy re-entry. Um, this is not like, you know, a standard flight. So you're still kind of pulling some pretty heavy G's there. So the question, why the roll? Um, so apparently this was because of improper packing of the solid propellant, which is the HTBP, uh, the hydroxyl terminated polybutadiene. Butadiene or butadiene? It's, yeah, it's butadiene. Well, butadiene. I don't know. Yeah. Don't want to piss off the O chemists listening right now. Sorry, right. yeah, polybutadiene. But uh, yeah, so this is part of the hybrid rocket motor. So that's the solid part, which is a kind of it's kind of like a rubber. That's what you know the HTBP is, um, and then it also uses nitrous oxide. That's the oxidizer. And one interesting thing that I didn't know about the the motor. There's a picture of the casing. It was actually wrapped in a wire, like a copper wire of some sort. Um, and this was just in case there was any burn through, it would actually short circuit that wire and mm. then that would shut down the engine automatically. I didn't know about that. That was mm. That's kind of like a cool little... Uh, yeah, flight termination system. Yeah, flight termination. But I think of, well, not not flight termination as in it's going right. to blow it up. <laughs> Thrust termination. Yeah. Thrust, Thrust termination. termination. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. That's a pretty like innovative and fairly simple mechanism in order to well, shut down... It, it's it's not innovative though. This is something that we used before Apollo. Like it, it's a it's a tried oh, and true, uh, well known method. Yeah. But I guess if there's a burn through, you know, you can't terminate. I mean, you can terminate the flight by blowing it up, but you're not shutting that off. So, but I mean, in this case, you can shut it off. So yeah, that's. Yeah, you know. yeah. Obviously, most most uh, engines most engines that use solid fuel are not hybrid engines, right? Like solid rockets there's no point in doing this uh unless you uh also have explosive that you can unzip the whole thing with well yeah so that was the issue um and bert rutan he described this as spin stabilized which i thought was a good spin <laughs> if you will to put on <laughs> yeah. uh so like if you have asymmetric thrust then you kind of do want to be spinning right so yeah i guess 
it, I guess that's what it was supposed to do. But one contributing factor to why it was spinning was actually because there was some wind that was hitting the sides of the vehicle and that was causing it to roll as a corrective action. And there was also um, apparently some amount of overcorrection from Mike. So he might have been trying to compensate in making it worse, at least at first. So there was like a lot of things going on. You have um, this, you know, spin being caused by the thrust and then you have wind and then you're trying to compensate for that. Um, but also he had actually pulled up pretty early and this caused a very low angle of attack. So basically there was not as much control from the control services because it was behaving a little bit more like a rocket and less like a plane because of the angle of attack being so low. So the next flight that they did uh, less than two weeks later, um, it took a slightly more benign ascent. It you know was not quite as steep. And then that way it could be flown a little bit more like a plane, less like a rocket. Um, but yeah, and uh, so this was a successful flight. The following one, which I don't know if we'll cover that separately because it was kind of just like a repeat of the first, um, less than two weeks later, and the X Prize was won. Yeah, so this is a quick little uh, This Week in Space Flight History, This Week in X Prize History. <laughs> All right, well, thank you very much, David. Uh, ben, next week is the 10th to the 16th of October. Do you have a clue for us? Yes, I do. Uh, next week in 2000, four forbidden cough drops. <laughs> Four forbidden cough drops. Very nice. And you have to get all four for, for credit. <laughs> um, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, if you have a guess as to what this clue is referencing, uh, email us at info at theorbitalmechanics.com or shoot us a toot on Mastodon using the hashtag, hashtag thisweeksf or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash discord for an invite to our discord server and type slash TWSF to hand your guests directly to Tom Bot. And good luck, everybody. Good luck. All right. So let's uh, move on to upcoming spaceflight events. Uh, and thank you to Launch Library 2, which is where we start our research each week. We have six launches. And Dennis, what is the first one this week? First up, we've got a Falcon 9 Block 5 that will be taking Starlink Group 621 to LEO. And so this SpaceX flight will be coming out of the Cape at Slick 40 uh, with a window on Thursday, October 5th from 0216 UTC to 0646 UTC. After that, we got a name that sounds familiar for some reason. Uh, maybe you can figure it out. It's Spaceship <laughs> 2 from Virgin Galactic. This is Galactic 04, which is their fourth commercial Virgin Galactic mission. I'm not sure uh, who's paying for the flight, but pretty cool to see them uh, up to four of these suckers after they said they were going to do them once a month. I think they're pretty close. I think they might be a little behind, but not by very far. So we're not sure exactly when this is going to be flying. It's sometime on Friday, October 6th. Um, it was originally um, scheduled the day before and then got bumped back apparently this morning. So, uh, yep, Friday, October 6th. And then after that, on the 6th, we have uh, the launch of an Atlas V in the 501 configuration. And that is launching, uh, I, I guess, the first of uh, Project Kuiper satellites or Kuiper satellites. So these are the first ones. I thought actually there were already some that had been launched. Yeah, I thought they had done one launch. Yeah. But even these ones, so this is two satellites and these are actually demonstration satellites and they'll be launched to 500 kilometers altitude. So I, I guess... I mean, they're still not the actual... Well, like, what do you call it? Commercial... Fully fledged. Yeah, the the, the, the flight satellites? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, they're, they're not uh, the ones that will actually be used, used. Um, but, you know, they're getting one step closer. So, yeah, like I said, um, this is launching on an Atlas V. The uh, window is from 1800 UTC on the 6th until 2303 on the 6th. And it's launching from Slick 
41, uh, Space Launch Complex 41 at the Cape. And then next up, we've got a uh, an, an NET, no earlier than, but this is an exciting one. Uh, this is uh, PLD Space's uh, Miura 1 uh, uh, suborbital, partially reusable uh, vehicle. And so the uh, this is the SN1 test flight. Uh, they uh, were earlier this summer, they had uh, they attempted to do their first flight, but they had to abort at the pad. And so this is them kind of getting right back out there again. And so uh, this will take place uh, again. It's an NET uh, for Saturday, October 7th. But um, they'll be launching uh, at the El Arenasio Test Center in Medano del Oro. It's a Spanish company, and it looks like they're launching out of Spain. And just to be clear, the reason this is an NET is because we have uh, a NOTAM issued. And so the NOTAM is opening up on October 7th. So it could be as early as that. It's not like an official, like, um, no earlier than in terms of like company scheduling kind of thing. So hopefully this will be more reliable. After that, we have a Vega. Um, it's been a little bit since we've seen a, a Vega launch. And uh, this Vega is absolutely loaded to the gills with CubeSats. Uh, Theos 2, Triton, Proba VCC, uh, which is the project for onboard autonomy vegetation companion CubeSat. And unfortunately, you know, it's looking at Earth, uh, like vegetation monitoring and not growing vegetation in a CubeSat. I'm kind of bummed about that. There's a CubeSat called Pretty, MaxSat, uh, CSC1 and 2, uh, N3SS, or NES maybe, uh, EST Cube 2, and Answer Leader Follower 1 and 2. Um, so a couple of, of paired uh, satellites there, which is pretty neat. It's going to be launching out of Kourou in French Guiana on Saturday, October 7th at 0136 hours UTC. So the the reason that we haven't seen a Vega in a while, uh, we looked it up, it's actually uh, November 2021, um, is because Vega C was taking over the fleet's duties. Um, well, we had that Vega C failure uh, back in December last year. Um, and so this is actually the return to flight uh, launch for the Vega family. And Dennis, you said that like they actually pulled this Vega and maybe a couple of other Vegas out of you know, they weren't going to fly and now they got re-manifested. If I remember correctly, the fact that Vega C had the failure the same time Ariane 6 was having the delays. And so I think Europe in its kind of scrambling were like, yeah, basically let's launch some Vegas that we weren't going to do initially as, as a, as a stopgap until Vega C gets kind of fixed. Yeah. Right. right. Soyuz really put a dent in Europe's ability to go to space. Mm. All right. And then finally we have the launch of a Falcon 9 on October 7th, and that is with uh, Starlink Group 74. So obviously, there was a, you know there was going to be a Starlink in here somewhere, <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, this one is uh, launching to low Earth orbit with a window of zero seven zero six UTC through uh, eleven twenty five UTC, and this one's actually launching from Vandenberg from uh, Space Launch Complex Four E, so a uh, West Coast launch. So that'll be fun to um, watch if you can. But yep, there is your Starlink launch, so you knew there had. Well, I guess it was one earlier too. Didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can 
There's so many, you can't even keep track of them. So yeah, I guess a nice little end cap, right? We started off with a Starlink mm. and we end with a Starlink. All right. Those are your Eclipse Space Light events. Okay. Which means it's time to do with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jinkies and Tim Dodd for our music. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Colin, Dank Massamemes, and Leon Running Man for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And if you want to support the show, please tell a friend, or better yet, leave us a review wherever you're listening. You can also visit theorbitalmechanics.com support for our Patreon campaign and affiliate links. Get in touch. Find links to our mailing list, Discord server, and Mastodon account at theorbitalmechanics.com about. Or you can skip all of that by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it. We'll see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you. Thank you.